All right, we're going to start Ezekiel tonight. <clears throat> and Ezekiel is an exciting book if we can wrap our mind around the, the point, the purpose. So Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah. So same time Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, Jeremiah, which we just finished, Lamentations, 40 years, Jeremiah's ministry begins before uh, Ezekiel's. <clears throat> Jeremiah is older than Ezekiel, but as uh, they're contemporary. So Jeremiah is ministering in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel is taken in the <clears throat> second siege, the, probably the first siege, the second time Jerusalem is conquered. We'll talk a little bit about it tonight. He's taken and he's in a refugee camp outside of Babylon, outside the Kabar Canal, and it's there that the book of Ezekiel springs forth. He's taken when he's 25. And on his 30th birthday, Ezekiel, whose family was of the priesthood, who was taken as an exile, now is a slave in Babylon, whatever future he thought he had is not happening, right? There's no priesthood in exile. There's no temple. There's no place to go. So on his 30th birthday, sitting by the Kabar Canal, God's going to call him into ministry as a prophet. <clears throat> and one of the things that Ezekiel is trying to encourage the exiles in Babylon to see is they, they have a wrong view of what's happening in their world. You see, the exiles in Babylon are pretty sure they're the ones God hates. God's mad at us. We're slaves. We're taken to a faraway country. We're having to live here in Babylon. I'm pretty sure that the people God loves are still in Jerusalem. And of course, the Lord will never allow Jerusalem to fall. And that's how the exiles were functioning there in, uh, in Babylon. And Ezekiel's message to them, and the very first message God gives him, is this idea that God's presence is with them in Babylon. His presence is not back at the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a couple of visions that Ezekiel is going to see to kind of nail that down. So trying to help the people in captivity understand that God still has a, a plan and a purpose that the Lord's still on the throne. And that's really all set down for us. The first three chapters in the vision as, as Ezekiel sees the Lord in chapter 1, receives his commission as a prophet. It's kind of laying that groundwork for us. So the book of Ezekiel kind of divides pretty neatly into three parts. Chapters 1 through 24 are going to deal with God's judgment against Jerusalem. That's going to be the focus, right? That's the part where he's trying to help the exiles understand, right, that God's, that Jerusalem is going to fall. Jerusalem will fall. You are God's planned remnant for the future. And so he's laying that out for them. Chapters 25 to 32, every prophet has it, is the oracle to the nations. So you have God's judgment on Judah. Then you're going to also have God's judgment on the nations. We have it, uh, every prophet that we study, we're going to see a section on that. Then from 33 to 48 is Ezekiel's message of restoration and hope. And so that's kind of how it all is going to break down. And if you keep in mind, once we get to the, the sections of scripture that are going to deal with restoration and hope, we talk about the valley of dry bones. Can this nation live again, right? What's Ezekiel telling the exiles? Yes, there is restoration and hope in the future. And you here who feel like you've been rejected are really the seed of that hope. And I think if we're honest, there are a lot of times where we feel like or we think or we've experienced in our own lives the feeling like I've been rejected or it's too late for me or there's nothing I can do. You know, I'm in this place and we're, we're like those exiles at the refugee camp in the slave camps. And we're thinking, you know, God's going to use those people over there, or those people over there. But the word from Ezekiel to them is no, God's going to use you. 
He's going to use your children, your children's children. He's going to use the seeds you sow while here in captivity to give birth to a nation again. And so the message of hope, hopefully that's going to come through. So as we look at chapter 1, the first three chapters are, are Ezekiel's call. So every prophet had a call. Somebody didn't just wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I'm going to be a prophet. So they had a call. God, had, they had a visitation of the Lord. The Lord calls him. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. We see it in Ezekiel uh, chapter 1. We see it in Isaiah chapter 1. So we see these, these things being laid out for the prophets, receiving a commission from God to go and be and do what God's calling them to do. And in that commission, we also see the seeds of the message that God's going to give the people. So for Isaiah, he says, go tell the people who aren't listening, the people who won't see and won't hear, who will continue not to see and not to hear, but you go give them the message anyway, right? And Ezekiel, he's going to give them a vision of God's presence, beginning with the Lord coming to him as a uh, what they call a storm theophany, uh, an appearance of God. We'll see this this tonight. Uh, but then you're also going to see, I want to say it's in chapter 11, you're going to see that same vision leaving Jerusalem, heading east toward Babylon. And the message to, to Ezekiel is, hey, the presence of God has left. God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem. God's presence is here. And God's presence doesn't require the temple. God's presence doesn't require a building. You know, as we work our way through some of the patriarchs of old, how many, Jacob, what, what, with Jacob when he's outside of Bethel, right? He said, the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. So he, understanding that God's presence, that's one of the messages of Ezekiel, God's presence is with us. Whether we're here in the slave camp or we're on top of the world, Right? Wherever we are, God's presence is there, and God's able to grant and deliver victory for it. So let's take a look. We'll pick it up. Uh, we're going to see a preamble in the first three verses, introduction in verse 4, and then we're going to see one of the wilder visions in Scripture. So it's a lot of fun. Wheels and wheels, chariots, cherubim, uh, living creatures should be fun. So let's take a look. Ezekiel 1. Begin at verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal. The heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. So this is Ezekiel's voice. We are going to see in Ezekiel the voice of the secretary, editor, whatever you want to talk about it, as, as Ezekiel's visions are compiled and placed into the book We'll know it because it'll go from first person to third person. You'll see one in just a minute where, where to give emphasis. Here's Ezekiel's words. Here's the secretary, the one penning, the one writing all the stuff down, compiling his visions, putting it all together for us. It's in his 30th year, fourth month, fifth day of the month. So he has been in captivity for five years. All right? So he's going to tell us that in just a minute. It says in verse 2, here we have the, 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 the secretary, the editor. He says, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. You see the third person, right? It's not Ezekiel talking in the first person. I was here. I did this. It's now the third person, which is, is not a problem, right? Hopefully you understand that. The biblical writers and the prophets had multiple people who were a part of assembling the prophecies that they brought together. Um, when I say it's an it's a editor's hand, I'm not saying that uh, yesterday somebody wrote a line in here to fix it. No, I'm saying this is what occurred through the school of the prophets and through the work of the prophets throughout their lifetime. So he says, on the fifth day of the month, fifth year, the exile of King Jehoiakim. Okay, so we have to have... And understanding what that's all about. So if you remember when we went through kind of our, our timeline of the kings in Jeremiah, our focus is really on the last four kings. Okay, so we're not counting Josiah. Josiah, the last godly king, disobedient at the end, dies in a battle. Maybe he doesn't have to die in. And when he dies, 
His son Jehoiahaz is going to rule. That's the first of the last four kings. Here's how you're going to remember the last four kings. Three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. What are the odds, right? So Jehoiahaz, he's going to rule for three months. Now, Egypt was the power of the day. Egypt is the one Judah's always looking for. For help. Egypt hadn't been beat yet. So Egypt comes into Jehoiahaz and the, and, and the Egypt arrests the king Jehoiahaz, which was the son of Josiah, the youngest son of Josiah who sat on the throne. And so he they arrest him. He's going to die in Egypt. So he only sits on the throne three months. Nico is going to take uh, Jehoahaz, put him in prison. He's going to raise up Eliakim. And he's going to change Eliakim's name to show his ownership of the king of Judah. And he calls him Jehoiakim. So I know sometimes we get confused by all the names. How come this guy's got two names or three names? Sorry. It was a confusing time. Kind of like today. Right? Does anybody really know what's going on today? I'm not entirely sure. I just am pretty sure it's following the script. It's just not mine. But I do know who's on the throne. Ezekiel wants to remind us of that over and over again. So Jehoiakim, he's placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho. He's going to rule for 11 years. Three years into his reign, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar is going to rise up in Babylon. He's going to come and have this incredible battle at Karchemesh. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's the best I can do. He's going to come and have this incredible battle at Karchemesh. He's going to defeat Egypt. So who was this power is going to be put down, going to become a vassal of Babylon. And so if Egypt was a vassal of Babylon, what happens to Judah? Well, Judah was a vassal of Egypt, so Judah now becomes a vassal of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. There's no real battle in the first conquering of Jerusalem. Basically, when they defeated Egypt, they defeated Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's going to come in. That's the first exportation of prisoners that go to Babylon. Who is in that first one? Daniel. He has three fans. You know their Hebrew names? Nope, that's Babylonian names. Know their Hebrew names? Anybody? Anybody? Hey, you never know what's going to come out on uh, uh, you know, Bible trivia. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, the three names, there are three Hebrew names. Yeah, I don't know that that ever comes up. It's Rakshak and Benny in VeggieTales. So those guys all go in the first deportation or the first group of slaves that go to Babylon, okay? That's under Jehoiakim. In 597, Jehoiakim's going to say, you know, I'm tired of Babylon because... It's Judah, and they're going to make this mistake as many times as possible. Even though Jeremiah is telling them, no, 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 no. Accept the judgment of God and live. Nope, they they continue to rebel. So, 597, he's going to rebel. When Nebuchadnezzar comes and sets up the siege, Jehoiakim will die at the beginning of the siege. Jehoiakim will die. Nobody's going to mourn. Nobody's going to notice. And Jehoiakim is going to sit on the throne. So we already had three months, then 11 years. What's the next guy? Three months. So he's he's not going to be on the throne very long. Jehoiakim is going to be taken in the second deportation along with Ezekiel. They're going to be taken... They're going to go to the Kabar Canal, and they're going to do whatever things they're doing there for five years, and Ezekiel's not going to have a word from the Lord during those five years. Nothing's going on. On his 30th birthday, when he would have been ushered in to the temple and began his priestly duty as a priest, as his family were priests, the Lord comes to him. So that kind of gets you, what that's what's going on in, the, in those first three verses that we look at, right? 
The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now, I want you to, to recognize some of the things, some of the language we're going to see in Ezekiel, because a lot of times when we talk about prophets, we have this idea that, <clears throat> you know, a prophecy just is like shot from heaven into their brain, and then they speak it out. And while that may be how it happens sometimes, there are going to be some times when the Bible is going to tell us in Ezekiel that the hand of the Lord was with Ezekiel and he touched him. So there are occasions when the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel is a person. The Bible tells us who that person is, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And the Word comes to Ezekiel and touches him, and he's going to share these things with him. So, and, and today, you know, John 1.18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. The only God that dwells in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed God to us. So the Son reveals the Father. That's what John 1.18 is telling us. When we have a physical representation of God, on the scene that somebody looks at, it is what we call in theological terms a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ, pre-incarnate Christ to the prophet. Whether it's Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, which John talks about in John chapter 12, by the way, take a careful read of John chapter 12, and you'll hear John say that that was Jesus there in Isaiah chapter 6. This is what Isaiah said when he saw me. You have the same thing in the burning bush. Right? You have the same thing. So when we talk about these things, we see theophanies and appearance of God to the people. The Bible is, says the same thing all the way through. No one has seen God, meaning no one has seen the Father. It's the Son that reveals the Father to us. So these are the things that are taking place. Just, just as a reminder, the hand of the Lord was upon him there. In, uh, in, in outside of Kabar Canal. <clears throat> so I'm going to skip all that stuff. Okay, let's go to verse 4. <laughs> I have like 47 pages of notes on chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And we'll never finish chapter 1 of Ezekiel if I do all 47 pages. So when we look at chapter 4. Wow. <laughs> Where'd that come from? I'm way too old for squeaky voice stuff. Okay, we begin in verse 4. We begin with what is called a storm theophany. A storm theophany is oftentimes how the secular world around uh, and, and the Canaanites would talk about Baal. They would tell stories about Baal like this. or they, And so when we look at Ezekiel and he presents us this storm theophany, what he's presenting is what we call a polemic, a, an argument against the reality of those other stories and the establishment of this. There are similarities, but there are differences that we see in no other culture anywhere except in the, in the, with the Jews. And primarily we'll see that in the living creatures which we're going to see in Revelation, we're going to see him in Ezekiel, we're going to see him uh, throughout Scripture pointing to a variety of things that hopefully we can, we can kind of get our mind set on. So in verse 4 he says, Behold, I looked, and a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming meadow. So there's something glowing in the middle of the storm. We'll, we'll be introduced to that in just a moment. So we have the stormy wind, this <clears throat> storm theophany, this, this uh, approaching of the chariot throne of Yahweh. And he's going to describe this throne. We want to see a throne. I know sometimes some of our wilder uh, friends might see uh, UFOs, wheels and wheels and wheels, and so we run off on a tangent 
and we talk about UFOs. These, there are four wheels around four living creatures, four cherubim, that each have four faces and four wings. And there's a reason why we keep repeating the number four. Four, 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 four cardinal parts on, points on earth. And one of the things Ezekiel's going to talk about is that this chariot can go any way it wants without turning. Because the Lord is light in him. There is no shadow of turning. There's no twisting. There's nothing he moves. He can move in every direction that he wants to move. So the wheels within wheels, you know, maybe we, we vision them as a caster wheel or as a gyroscope or whatever it is. They don't really necessarily touch the ground at all because the guys flying next to them are the ones that make sure the chariot moves. So we just kind of want to get our minds around. Big storm, cloud, the thunder and lightning. We saw that at Mount Sinai, right? Remember Mount Sinai, the giving of the law? What did we see? Dark clouds come down over the top of the mountain. Thunder, lightning, fire. These are all representations of the glory of God, in phys a physical representation of the glory of God before the people. So they, this is how they describe him. This big storm coming. Fire, lightning bolts everywhere. It's, it literally says it was a great cloud with brightness around it or a glorious radiance. The word in Hebrew is noga. It means, it means a brilliant radiance. It's incredible, bright uh, light <coughs> that you can see through the, the cracks of the storm cloud. So this brilliant radiance is coming out wherever the, the, the parts of the cloud part. So we have this incredible, this incredible thing. And in the middle of it, there's like a heart of molten metal. Like, a, like if you saw a forge or a smelter, the, the molten metal. This is the color that he's, that he's talking about. The color that he sees in the middle of it. He says now in verse 5, And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. Not statues, not representations, four living creatures. We've seen these creatures before, right? They're, they come up in Scripture rather frequently. Um, they are sometimes called the cherubim. They are sometimes called seraphim. It's important that you understand those two words are the same word. It's different language, but it's the same word. It's a word for a throne guardian. The four living creatures are always around the throne of God. What do they say around the throne of God? You know this. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Right? So we've seen this before. The throne guardians <coughs> around the throne of God. Now, if we were to have the time and we could go through the description of the, the implements in the temple, Solomon's temple, and what was built in Solomon's temple, you would see... Four cherubim in the Holy of Holies. Two of them are on the Ark of the Covenant. Their wings touch. Two of them are over the Ark of the Covenant. Their wings touch in the middle and their wings touch the wall on the outside. In the temple, not the tabernacle, in the temple, that was the throne of God. He sat on the first two wings and the Ark of the Covenant was his footstool. That symbolized the throne of heaven. How many living creatures do they have in there? Four. Right? Oh, this is the same kind of thing we're going to see over and over again. The consistency of scripture describing the four living creatures, the throne guardians around the throne of God. The Bible calls them, describes them in these ways. And we're going to see the number four, 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 everywhere you turn. <clears throat> You're going to see the number four, which represents the idea that the presence of God is everywhere. And they're going to establish that in the way they describe the movement, the faces, the wings. All of this is going to be talking about the fact that God wants to emphasize to Ezekiel, to the exiles, to you and I, that God doesn't live in a building in Jerusalem. That God's not stuck in one place. 
<clears throat> I don't have the reference in, in my mind, but there, were, there was a battle fought against Israel, and they said, oh, you guys probably all remember what it is. You can tell me later. But they had this battle with Israel, and they said, oh, he's the God of the, of the mountains, but he's not the God of the valleys. We have to fight in a different place. We lost because we fought on a mountain. Let's fight in a valley, or vice versa. And the Lord was saying through his prophet, no, I'm, I'm the God everywhere. I'm the God of the mountain, God of the valley, desert, sea. Isn't there a psalm about that? Where can we run from the presence of God? Is there anywhere? What if I go out on a little tiny ship way out in the ocean? Is God there? Yeah. What if I'm in the grave? Is God there? Yeah, he says. If, I, if I'm in the heavens, is God there? Yep. If I'm in the depths of the earth, is God there? Yep. There's nowhere we can go from the presence of God. And so this is going to be an emphasis that we see here. So we have the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Here's what that means. They don't look like us at all. They're physical. That's what he's talking about. Okay, the, the thing they have like us is they're going to have a human face, but they have four faces. Do you guys have four faces? So that's a little different, right? They're going to have hands like we have hands, but they have four wings. Anybody have wings? No? So that's a little different. So when it says they're in the likeness of humans, he's talking about they're, they're, they are physical. This is a physical not some spiritual, ethereal, ghostly being. It's a physical being, a living creature, right? Like man, a living creature has life that is there around the throne guardian, uh, or, or, or as throne guardians around the throne of God. So here's here, they had a human likeness, they're physical, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet are like a calf's foot. They have bovine feet. You guys don't have that either, right? I was going to make a really bad joke <laughs> about what the toe people say to my wife when she go gets her feet done. But she probably wouldn't appreciate it. So I'm not going to say it. And since she's not here, I think I get a pass anyway. We'll see if she's watching at home. I might be in trouble still. So they had feet like a, like a cow. <laughs> That's not what I was trying to say, babe. <coughs> that doesn't sound so good. Uh, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. This is what they were like. Their wings touched one another. Now, this is what I want you to picture, okay? You have four living creatures with two wings out. With two wings, they're going to fly. The two wings they have out are going to present a square. We're going to see it at the end of the chapter. On those wings, there is a crystal platform and upon that crystal platform is a throne. And upon that throne is the Son of God. Okay? So the wings touch and create a square. So can you guys picture how that is in your mind? I, I, most of the time, if I try to look for an artist's rendition of this, I get all the crazy ones. So they have all these wild pictures, and I'm like, that... Or do you guys read this, or do you just go, oh, they have four wings. How, can we, how, what, how many weird ways can we make four wings? So, or how can we make wheels within wheels? And they do all those things. So <laughs> there are some really good artist renditions of this. Um, if you're curious about it uh, and you go home, look up on YouTube the uh, Bible Project on Ezekiel, and they'll give you a great picture of, of what that looked like. You just They'll give you a synopsis of of Ezekiel, but they do have a picture of, of what he's talking about in chapter 1. So, so it says, uh, blah, 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 blah. here's their wings. They each touch. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. Now, here's the important thing. We'll develop this a little further in the vision, but they're going to go wherever the Spirit wants them to go, and they don't have to turn. 
They can just go. So the idea of the wheels, and, and as I consider the wheels, a wheel within a wheel, you know, I, 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 I picture it like a caster or something like that. But keep in mind, they're not pushing it on the ground. The wheels go wherever the angels go. So as the angels fly, the wheels go where they go. They're, it's like they're attached. Perhaps that's what they use their hands for, but although the text doesn't tell us that. But wherever they go, they go where the Spirit wants to go, and they just go that way. So they go forward, they go left, they go right, they go north, south, east, west. Four cardinal points of the earth, signifying there's no place that God can't go. There's no place he can't get. There's not like he can't get in there, it's too tight. He can't turn around. He doesn't need to turn around. He flies where he wants to fly. And as we look, there are going to be times when we see the four living creatures who are moving in a different direction... And there will be a different face facing that direction because there are certain face with each cardinal point. So as the throne is moving, depending on which direction it moves, there will be a different face that you'll see as they, as they approach. So we'll talk about that a little bit more when we, when we get to it. So uh, each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces... Each had a human face. Uh, the four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of the other, while two covered their bodies. Each went straight forward wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. So each one of these faces has a significance to the Jewish people. Each one of these, these visions of the animal had a focus that would have, would have when, whenever we come to a text like Ezekiel, like Revelation, like any of the prophets, the goal as we exegete that text as we work our way through that text is to get in the mind of the author not in the mind of a 21st century person trying to figure out what the author means how do we get into the mind of the author well we we look at the the people the writings of the day and of that time and we see how did they view these ideals the bible talks about each one of these the bible talks about the lion renowned for its strength and ferocity and courage and it's a symbol of royalty. The king, the eagle, was the swiftest and most stately of the birds. It's, again, referenced several times in Scripture. Oftentimes can be a picture of deity. The ox was uh, the most valuable of all the domestic animals. And it functioned as a symbol of uh, fertility and uh, uh, service. It was a... And then the third, the human being, created in the image of God, uh, invested with divine majesty, is the most, most dignified and noble of all. So you have this picture within the four living creatures underneath the throne of God of all of creation being beneath the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Everything, every part of creation, every part of of who we are and what we are about, <clears throat> supporting, holding up the image of, of Almighty God. So you have <clears throat> carrying the divine throne, four-headed cherubim, declaring Yahweh has the strength and the majesty of the lion, the swiftness, mobility of the eagle, the procreative power and service of the ox, and the wisdom and reason of mankind. He is over it all. Transcendent above it all. He's bigger. More beautiful. More majestic. He sets over it. And so this is the, the picture. This is the imagery that is coming through in the vision. Verse 13. He goes on. As for the likeness of the living creatures... Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among living creatures. And the, and the fire was bright 
And out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So this is not a slow-moving chariot, right? They're unified. They're moving together. They are. They still. They have the radiance, the glow, right? While being living creatures, while being physical uh, uh, creation of of the Lord, they are uh, shining forth like fire. They're like uh, like molten metal. This is the the image. Now you're going to see the exact same thing in Revelation four five. You have two visions of the throne room in heaven in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 4 or 5 it says, From the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. You have this same picture when John has his vision of the throne room in heaven. The similar representation of the colors, the fire, the lightning. All of that around what I would say is still the throne chariot of God. Around, standing around that four living creatures, right? We'll see the, the singing around the throne in, in Revelation chapter 5 and the, and the representation of the four living creatures saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, chapter 4, Revelation. This is consistent viewpoint of the throne of God throughout the prophets of God into Revelation. Now in, in verse 15, we're going to start to look at the wheels, <clears throat> the throne chariot of Yahweh. Now, as I looked at the living creature, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creature, one for each of the four of them. Now, here's what we know about the wheels. They go wherever the living creature goes. The Bible doesn't tell us they're connected, they're apart. They're the wheels at the base of the chariot that the chariot would ride on. Like if you made a human, uh, 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 if we built something like this, they would be the four wheels that were on the bottom. The only rule would be it has to be able to go in every direction without having to turn. So, but these are the wheels at the base of the, of the throne chariot. Okay, he says one there for each of the four living creatures. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction... Their appearance was like gleaming barrel. So again, you have similar color to fire. Similar color to molten steel. You have this radiating glow coming forth from the wheels. Uh, and the four had the same likeness. So every one of them has the same wheel. Their appearance and construction uh, being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. Now people have argued about this forever. What is a wheel inside a wheel? Gyroscope, maybe, right? You get a picture of a gyroscope, two, two balls, one inside the other, uh, that, uh, that are able to move, can go in whatever direction. Are they uh, the hub of a wheel and the outside of a wheel, just like we have on our, on our cars today, that's a Wheel inside of a wheel, right? You have a hub and you have the outer part or the rim of the wheel. <clears throat> and every possible artist's crazy idea from that. The one thing we know about the wheels inside of wheels, you, you got Ezekiel, right, trying to describe what this is. I'm, I'm fine with the wheel inside of a wheel, you know, because to be honest with you, it don't, it don't got to roll anyway. They fly, right? That's the whole point of having wings. They're, that's flying. They set on the wheel. He set it down, setting on the wheel. There's four living creatures, the wings holding up the, the platform upon which is the throne of God. Wherever them four living creatures go, pew, everything goes with them. Wheels inside of wheels is what he says. The four have the same likeness. And when they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. Again, he's emphasizing the reality. And I think what he's pointing to is the concept of omnipresence. There's no place God can't be. No place he can't be. I can't get, I, I can't, you know, I've been camping with a truck and a fifth wheel. And I come to a camp spot and I go, Kathy says, this is where I want the trailer. 
And I say, well, that's cool. I can't do that. I can't get it there. You know, if I could disconnect it and pick it up with a big hand, you know, and turn it and spin it around and set it between them trees right next to the creek. But I am attached to the vehicle that's got to put it there and it can't get there, right? So the idea that's being purported here in this vision of God to exiles living in a slave camp outside of Babylon thinking we've been cast out of God's family and God's not here with us and he can't get to where we are and we're separated from our people is God saying there's no place I can't be. I can go anywhere. I am able to be in all of these places. And we do the same thing, right? If we were to move from one place to another, it took, when me and Kathy moved here, <coughs> excuse me, from, from California, we left a lot of really close friends, and I bet it took us about three years to, to get to where we stopped calling California home and started calling Idaho home. It just takes a, it just takes a while to, to, to disconnect. And you, now if you imagine, we, made, we did that by choice. We chose to come to Idaho, felt that God was directing and God was calling, so that's where we went. Can you imagine being taken as a slave to a place you didn't want to go, and God's word to you is, I'm here with you still. I'm, I'm here too. I know you think I was just with you back there. That was the only place I was with you, but that's not the only place I'm with you. I, there's no place I can't go. So the Lord has a purpose and a plan for Ezekiel that he wants him to hold on to and understand. And so you keep having this phrase repeated. They can go every direction, they don't have a turn. Go every direction, don't have a turn. They can go every direction, don't have a turn. So there's no place that, that he can't be. There's no place God can't go. You notice there's no motor, right? There's no special, what was it on, uh, what was it on that uh, DeLorean and uh, time travel show? What did they call that thing? That's how you guys know it. The flux, yeah, no flux capacitors, no trash thing to put trash in. What's the motor? Well, the Bible says the motor is the spirit of God. Wherever the spirit of God wants to go, they go. Wherever the Spirit of God's directing, whatever the Spirit of God is doing, that's where they're going. The cherubim are the, are the motor. They are the, that part of driving and taking it where it wants to go. Now look what it says verse 18. And their rims were tall and awesome. So he's talking about the wheels. The rims of the wheel were tall and awesome. So, so they're chrome. They're cool chrome. He has the throne, the throne uh, chariot of God is, I don't know if you can use this word, but it's pimped out. <laughs> He's got tall and awesome rims. And listen, the rims were, uh, the, the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Now, a lot of people have argued over this, so I'm going to give you both viewpoints, okay? Uh, a lot of times when we see beings or things full of eyes, we talk about the omniscience, the, that God knows everything, that there's nothing that God doesn't know. So it can represent the omniscience of God. But there's also others who argue over this, that there was a, <coughs> there was a, a jewel stone uh, that has the same name uh, that they called eyes that they used to dec for decoration. So it's possible he's talking about the decoration of it. It's possible he's referring to the fact that we all know that God's all-knowing, right? So whether the wheels on the chariot have eyes on them that represent that God is all-knowing or not doesn't change the fact that God is all-knowing. It's possible that he's just talking about the decorations on the wheels, right? That they're full of these jewels, these jeweled eyes all around. All around the wheels, they're... They're tall, they're awesome, and they're full of eyes. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why. doesn't tell us how they're connected. doesn't tell us they're holding on to them. doesn't tell us they're not holding on to them. <laughs> it just says wherever the angels go, the wheels go. So the wheels are always next to the throne guardians, the cherubims, the seraphim, right? 
two different languages, same word, throne guardians of God. They, they are always represented around the throne of God. The wheels are always there. If the wheels are always there and they're always around the throne of God, the throne of God is a chariot throne. You see it in the temple. And if now that you kind of are aware of it, if you, if you read all those extra boring sections of all the materials that they build the temple and they did this and they did that, you know, the ones you read really fast or skip. If you read them closely, you're going to see the wheels around the throne in the temple and in the tabernacle. So you're going to see this consistency throughout Scripture. We're going to see it over and over again. He goes on, 2021. We're almost done. We can make it. I'll roll back the clock. Howard's pointing it back for a minute. <laughs> Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. The wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So they're connected. They're somehow unified. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose right along with them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Wherever the Spirit goes... The chariot of God goes. There's no place it can't go. There's a face facing in every direction, and they're going in that direction, whatever direction, without turning. Over the heads, here's the throne. Over the heads of the living creature, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So picture this crystal plate, right? The crystal sea, this crystal plate, spread out over their wings, and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering his body, and when they went, I heard the sound of the wings, the sound of the waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army, and when they stood still, they let down their wings, and, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, when they stood still, they let down their wings, and so you have the throne over them, two wings covering their body, two wings holding up the expanse. Verse 26, and above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire. Seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. What do we call that? Rainbow. Hey, doesn't Revelation talk about a rainbow around the throne? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The kabod, the kabod of God. He's describing the glory of God as Jesus sits on the, the throne chariot of God coming before Ezekiel on his 30th birthday to give him his marching orders for what is the rest of Ezekiel's life is going to be all about. In a land, Ezekiel was pretty sure God couldn't talk to him in. And a life, Ezekiel was pretty sure, had been so radically changed that there's no way for him to get back on track. But God had a plan Ezekiel didn't know about. Do you think it's possible God has a plan for you that you don't know about? In case you're thinking, God don't have a plan for me. That's what Ezekiel was thinking on his 30th birthday, sitting down by the riverside. And then... The Lord God Almighty appeared. He says, when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. But if you want to hear what the one speaking said, you're going to have to come back. That's as far as we can go. But when we look at this throne and the fire and the rainbow, look, I just want you to see each one of those Symbolize. The throne symbolizes the sovereignty of God. He's still on the throne, right? He's not off the throne. Even though Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, even though they're slaves in a faraway land, even though it's, life hasn't happened the way Ezekiel had planned, 
I promise, Ezekiel wasn't sitting at home thinking, you know what, I'm 25, I want to be a slave for five years. <clears throat> right? That wasn't what his plan was. But did God have a purpose? Yes. And does God have a call for him? Absolutely. Does, and is God, is God going to express it to him? Was Ezekiel going to miss it? Was Ezekiel going to sit around, oh, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm probably going to miss what God wants me to do. No, he didn't miss it, right? When God came to tell him, he, he understood? So will you. So will I. Whatever plan and purpose God has in your life, he wants you to know even more than you want to know. And you won't miss it. You won't miss it. You just got to keep your eyes open. Like Lamentation said, your mouth shut. Because if it's open, you're probably making too much noise with it. Right? Eyes open, mouth shut, ears open. Pay attention. When the Lord came to Elijah, he said he showed him all these mighty works, but the Lord wasn't in any of them, right? Where was he? He was in the still, small voice. And he said to Elijah, why are you here? Hmm. He gave him direction, though. He's going to say to Ezekiel, I have direction. He said to Isaiah, I have direction. He said to Joseph, I have direction. He said to Mary, I have direction. He said to Peter, James, John, I have direction, right? He's going to say the same to you and I. Just stay tuned. Stay ready. Eyes open. Keep your face in the word. And allow God to bring it. Right? Lord, show me. What is it that you want me to do? God has a plan. Still today, even in our crazy sideways, upside down world, and the throne of God can't be stopped. It can get over it all. I don't care how many decrees they make on Capitol Hill. It doesn't matter. God don't care about their decrees. They are going to care about God's. Promise. Stay tuned. Amen? Once you stand with me, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to study your word, God, to, to begin to be challenged by the prophet Ezekiel and the visions that he saw, Lord. And I pray, God, that you help us make application that we can say, that we can understand, Lord, that sometimes we are in a prison camp. Sometimes we feel like a refugee. Sometimes we don't think there's purpose or a plan or we thought our plan was to the left or to the right. And as Ezekiel sits there beside the river on his birthday wondering, I thought I was going to be a priest by now. The Spirit of God came to Ezekiel and called him a prophet to his people. On a 23-year-long ministry to get the exiles ready to raise up the generation that would get them back in the land. God chose Ezekiel for that. God, I pray that you open our eyes and you open our ears and that we can hear your voice and understand your presence is with us. You don't require a building, <clears throat> a particular church, a particular person. You are able to get to us wherever we are. So God, may we know beyond the shadow of a doubt, your presence is here and you want to guide and lead us. And we want to obey. We give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.